Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. We finished last week our series through Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy. We are going to spend just a bit of time in the book of Exodus. In fact, we're just going to spend a bit of time in a small portion of the, bit, uh, of the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It is written by Moses as the first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's a mouthful, but they were all written by Moses. And Moses is actually introduced in the book of Exodus. He's actually introduced earlier in chapter 2, his birth story. But we're just going to look at the last few verses of Exodus chapter 2 this morning. If you are using the Pew Bible, it is page 49 on the Pew Bible, 49 in the Pew Bible. And if you are new to the Bible, or if it's been a long time since you've uh, been to church and you're trying to fumble your way through, it might be really helpful not only to know the page number, but the Bible is kind of divided. Each book is divided into chapters and verses. Those numbers are the large numbers, are the chapter divisions. The small numbers are the verse divisions. And while those numbers, those chapters and verses, aren't original, that is, Moses didn't write chapter 2 and then verse 1 and all the rest. He simply wrote. The, he simply wrote. And those chapters and verses were added later. Those numbers were added later so that we could find our way around more easily. Well, the reason we are checking into this section, this portion of Scripture, is to, is to help us see our God more clearly. We are emphasizing, we want to, together, we want to emphasize and look and meditate upon who our God is, particularly with a view to the mission that God has given his people. Months ago, I was meditating on Psalm 9, our passage. And there you find these words in verse 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in you. Those who know your name put their trust in you. And we need to put our trust in God. More than that, we need to carry the message of God's trust to others. Moses is recording at the very end of chapter 2, he is recording God's, not, not just his awareness, but the Lord's, the Lord's care, the Lord's compassion on his people who are afflicted. And I have no doubt that in our midst this morning, many are afflicted. In fact, I would venture to say all of us in some way or another are dealing with hardship of one kind. There are issues that you and I are facing. There are questions. There are doubts that you and I bump up against every day. And they will come from a variety of ways. Some of those things will come to us from work. Some of them, they will come from the relationships we find ourselves in, be they marriage relationships, parent-child relationships, family, friends. It may deal with money. It may deal with our own personal health or the health of someone we love. 
And our text helps us see this morning the compassion on God on those who are afflicted. And it's important for us to see this. Exodus, we're just going to look at verses 23 to 25, these last three verses of chapter 2. But everything that has come before this is massively important. You'll remember we worked our way through the book of Genesis for a lengthy period of time not too long ago. And, And Genesis ends with the people of Israel being rescued by God and sent into Egypt. Joseph, you will remember, was the means by which God delivers his people, and not just his people only, but also Egypt itself. And Egypt flourishes and prospers, and the people of God, Israel, they too, we read in Exodus chapter 1, they flourish and prosper until at some point in time, change in leadership after change in leadership, a a pharaoh, a king of Egypt arises that does not remember the history of Egypt, does not recall Joseph and his contribution no longer has an appreciation for the people of Israel. And rather than seeing and being filled with thanksgiving for what the people of Israel have contributed to Egypt, they merely see an immigrant population that has exploded in growth, and now they feel that insecurity. They feel threatened by them. And the response is to subject, increasingly subject, the Israelites, to slavery and hardship. And in chapter 2, chapter 1 ends with this command by Pharaoh to kill all of the male uh, Israelite children when they are born. Uh, The Israelite midwives are to execute them immediately before they are fully born. And the midwives, we are told, they fear God. In fact, in the first two chapters, they are the only ones who seem to fear the Lord. It's the only time in the first two chapters outside of our few verses where God God is mentioned. They fear God. They refuse to bow to the Egyptian pharaoh's orders. And instead, they, they allow these children to be born. Moses himself is a product of this time. He is born in this time period. His life is under threat. His parents hide him away until many of you may know the story. He is sent down the river and he comes to the princess. He comes to a member of of Pharaoh's own household and he is taken in and raised and his mother gets paid for caring for him, which is a a sweet gig, right? If only that were all moms got paid for being able to take care of their own children from, you know, governmental uh, sources. But Moses comes on the scene, and very quickly we find that Moses, despite the fact that he is an Israelite himself, and he has the, he's being raised by his mom in the knowledge of who God is, as a man, he does not fear the Lord. In verse 11, we find him looking upon the people of Israel, upon their plight, and he is moved by his own people's needs. And so he, rather than going to the Lord and asking his aid, Moses goes ahead and he tries to free the people of Israel themselves, and it ends terribly. It ends with him running into the wilderness for 40 years to escape the threat of death on his own life. And there he kind of builds himself a family, makes a family, and it is there in chapter 3 that God will confront Moses. 
And that conversation with Moses in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is going to take up our time over the next few weeks. But this morning, we're going to look at the very end of chapter 2, where we see God's mercy, his compassion on his people. And Exodus centers on God's action to rescue Israel. That's what Exodus is all about. It's all about God's work to rescue, to redeem, to bring his people out of slavery, and then what he brings them out of slavery for. God's not merely interested in getting his people out of slavery and then just letting them go. God has a plan for them. And the overriding theme of Exodus is that God is acting for a reason. He saves for a reason. And he brings his people out for a reason. And that reason, we find early on, is so that God's name will be made known. When Moses brings his message to Pharaoh and tells him that the Lord is commanding him to let his people go, Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord? I don't know. I don't know him. And God's response is that he is going to act in such a way so that Moses knows. And not only Moses, so that Israel is, is able to know. And not only Israel, but Pharaoh. And not only Pharaoh, but Egypt. And not only Egypt, but the whole world will know that God is God. That he is the Lord indeed. That is the overriding theme. God acts, he redeems, he saves, he rescues For his glory. So that the world may know. So that the world may know. In our passage, beginning in our passage, all the way through the middle of chapter 4, we are given a... We are given specific things that we can see and know about our God. If the call upon us as Christians is to go and to send and to to be God's witnesses in all the world, whether our all the world is here locally or in the case of our missionaries, it is globally somewhere else. It is not merely to declare the good news. It is to declare the good news of Christ Jesus so that people may know who God is and what he has done. This text is absolutely critical. So let me read our text this morning, verses 23 to 25. And then we will pray and we will begin our study. Verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them, or we might say, and God knew. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your word. We ask for your mercy and grace as we study it. Not merely that we may observe the thing in the text, but that your word may itself observe us, that it may inspect us, that it may reveal to us where we have failed to appreciate you, failed to know you, failed to act in light of your glory, in light of who you are. Oh God, let us see and savor you this morning. 
that we may serve you in all the world. We pray this in your Son's name, Christ Jesus. Amen. The first thing that we see this morning is that God himself hears. He hears. You see this in verses 23 and 24, that now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage, so God heard their groaning. There are four different Hebrew words that are used here, only They are translated in only two different English words. uh, Moaning, groaning, and their cry. The first, when the children of Israel groaned, it gives us a picture that they have this nonverbal response to the burden of their affliction, to the burden of their slavery. It's, It's an intelligible cry out to the Lord. It's an unintelligible Moaning and groaning under the weight of their burden. And then we see this, this line, and they cried out. It, literally, you might, you might translate that they shrieked out. Here, we, if, if before it's the burden, it's the groaning, it's, it's what you and I do if you have worked out hard the day before or walked hard the day before. That next morning, especially those of you who are older, you, you wake up and before you ever move a muscle, you feel everything you did the day before, right? That's what that is. Here, this crying out, shrieking for help, this pictures the pain of their suffering. Not only is it burdensome, not only is it hard, it is also painful. They are shrieking out. But the decisive word here is in verses 3. They cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. It is decisive because now, for the first time here, they are addressing God. It brings about decisive change because they are, not because of the content of what they cry, but because of the the one to whom they are crying. They are now finally turning to the Lord and crying out to Him. Here at last, God's people are praying. And it, it raises the question, what took them so long? We know by this time from, from both God's, what he has told us in Genesis earlier and what he tells us later, that Israel has been in slavery. They've been in Egypt for 400 plus years. And now at last, they are finally, after many, many decades of serving under the, the weight of slavery, now they are crying out to God. I think we can expect that there was groaning, there was moaning, they, there, was, there was probably even crying out to God on the part of the people of Israel before this. But now it has reached a new level of fervor, a new level, level of, of need. And it begs the question, why? Why now? And I think we get a clue as to the urgency of the request and why they are praying now rather than before, at the very beginning of verse 23. Do you see what he says? Now it happened in the process of time, or literally it sees after many days, or I like how one translation puts it, during that long period of time. Now it happened in the process of time, after this long period of time, that the king of Egypt died. Something about the death of, of Pharaoh 
triggered this response from the people of Israel. Why why is the death of Pharaoh, this, this Pharaoh, why does his death now trigger this response? I think the people of Israel are a lot like you and I. They are concerned about their welfare. They're concerned about their, their, the people, the nation, the people of Israel. They're concerned about their well-being. And they're seeing the, the agenda, the political agenda, the leaders of their country that are oppressing them and hurting them. And there has been this long hope that perhaps it is the next Pharaoh who will finally free them. Or the next Pharaoh, this Pharaoh is terrible, the next Pharaoh will be better. Or perhaps it is, perhaps this Pharaoh, finally in his old age, perhaps he will be kind and he will finally free us from our slavery. And he dies and the next Pharaoh doesn't free them. Whatever it was, it seems that they are putting their hope simultaneously in the Lord, but also in a change of administrations. That the next leader, he will be better. He will do what's right. We will prosper with him. And when he comes and they don't, they are finally learning the lesson not to put their hope in kings. A lesson that you and I have to remember every four years. Not to put our hope in a leader or in a set of leaders. Here God's people are trying to simultaneously split their hope up between the Lord and between something else. And what Israel has done is something that you and I are so often guilty of. We we hope in God, but we are also hoping in a change of politics for our country. We hope in God, but we are also simultaneously confident that if we will just do more, if we will work harder, if we will work smarter, if we will learn more, if we will do whatever, then, then we will be able to get ourselves out of whatever hole we are in. We hope in God, but we're also hoping in someone else. Perhaps teenagers, perhaps it is your parents, you're looking to your parents. Perhaps it is our spouses. I'm hoping in God, but I'm, I'm also hoping that, God, that, that my spouse will finally change and do, you know, exactly what I want them to because we know that in our marriages, one of us, particularly us, we are always right and our spouse is always wrong. It's our job to help them see that, right? We're hoping in us. We're hoping in others. We're hoping in an insurance company to come alongside Without even realizing it, we put our hope in our companies, that regular paycheck that comes to us, whatever provision and source of provision we may get. And sometimes as a severe mercy of God, he removes all of those things. It's as if We think we have built our lives on a secure foundation. And God comes along with a sledgehammer and just removes one pillar after the next. Until the whole thing is wobbling and shaking. And we have to put our hope and our lives on the one thing that's that's holding true. 
on the Lord. And we, and we don't know, will this too fall down? God, why have you done all this? And the people of Israel, their hope has been divided between the Egyptian leadership and God. And now they are having to finally put all of their eggs in one basket. Which we know may be terrible investment advice. But it is exactly what we must do when we come to the Lord. And this reminds us also of a parallel truth. Here we have the people of Israel. They are groaning. They are crying out. And for the first time, their cry, they cry out to the Lord. And we hear these wonderful words at the beginning of verse 24. So God heard their groaning. Brothers and sisters, God hears us. And we are reminded in these texts, in these words, that there is power in prayer. There is power in prayer. And the power of prayer is not in prayer itself. The power of prayer is in the one to whom we pray. He is omnipotent. There is no end to the power of God. He is good. There is no end, no shortage of the goodness of God. He is patient. He is loving. All power in earth and heaven belongs to him. More than this, we find that the power of prayer is found in the providence of God. Israel is crying out to God finally. And we read in verse 24 that God hears them. But we ought not to think that God has been waiting around for their permission to finally act. Prayer is not us giving consent to God for him now to finally be God. He has already been in the process of raising up a deliverer. Moses, he has been preparing since birth, and since he has sent him out into the wilderness, he has been preparing him there for 40 years. Long before the people of Israel finally woke up to the fact that their desperate hope could only be answered in a triune, perfect, powerful God, God was already working. Prayer is not us twisting the arm of God to get him to do what he wants, what he doesn't want. Nor does prayer change God or change his plans. We are not acting on, on, on God. Rather, prayer is the evidence of God's working in us. Prayer is part of God's, part of God's plan to accomplish his purposes. This is really made clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Paul begins to describe his own affliction and, and then those with him. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. There we are given a window into the emotional heart of Paul where he despairs of life. Itself, as a dark day for him, they felt they were under the sentence of death. But all this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
And he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. There's that confidence. Paul says, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. As you also help us by your prayers, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. So here Paul does not He does not pit action against prayer. Rather, when God's people can't do anything else for Paul, they pray as the very best thing that they can do. And Paul says that God helps him, not through mere luck, not through uh, through any other means, but but through the prayers of God's people. God ordains that God's people pray, and through their prayers, God accomplishes his purposes. Prayer is not us acting on God. It is God acting through us to accomplish his purposes. So brothers and sisters, pray. Pray because God hears. He hears your prayers. Pray about your own lives. Pray about those sins and guilt that weigh upon you. Pray for your own church family, that those who are shut in would be helped, that they would, that we might encourage them and love them, that, they, that God might draw near. Pray for the young men and young women in our church to grow in godliness. Pray for older believers to maintain their faith and commitment to Christ. Pray that we would all persevere in the faith and in service to Christ. Pray for those who are single. Pray for those who are married. Pray for those who have parent. Pray for those who have kids and for those who do not. Pray for elders. Pray for pastors. Pray for deacons. Pray. We need the Lord to act. Pray for your family. Husbands, pray for your wives. You want God to work in your wife? Are you talking to the Lord? Asking him? Wives, pray for your husbands. Pray for one another. Pray for your children. Pray that they will see and savor God, that they would serve him all their days. That they would grow up in humility, committing themselves to God's word. Pray for them. Kids, pray for your parents. When your parents lack patience, pray for them. Pray for your teachers. Pray for your friends, for your neighbors. Pray for our communities. Pray for our country. Pray for our world. We want justice and righteousness. We want the gospel to spread. Pray. Pray because God hears. But God just doesn't hear. We find also that God sees. You see this in verse 25? The New King James translates this saying, and God looked upon the children of Israel. If you have a different translation, you'll probably read something like, and God sees, he saw the children of Israel. You shouldn't read into this that God did not see or he did not pay attention and he did not care about them before. But here we have an indication that God is drawing his attention now to his own people. 
Here, what is indicated is that we are getting a window into the heart of God. God not only hears his people, he sees them. He sees us in our suffering. He sees you when you feel that no one else sees you. In the darkness of night, in the darkness of depression, God sees you. And God's seeing is effective. Back in verse 11 of chapter 2, we find the same description of Moses. Moses goes out and he looks upon the children of Israel. And his response then is to try to rescue and save them. And he can't do it. He fails. He's like you and I when, if you are a parent, you know the grief, you know the, the hardship of having someone, maybe a child, who is hurting, who is sick, who is helpless. And you care for them, but you can't help them. It's one of the worst feelings in the world. You want to, you want to help them. You want, you want to make them better. You would do anything in the world. You wish you could trade places with them. You see them in their suffering. You sit by their bed. You sit on, next to the couch. You rub their head. You do whatever it is for them. But really, you can't fix them. That's your seeing and mine. God's seeing doesn't work that way. God sees the people of Israel and it results in salvation. It results in deliverance. God sees and he acts. God, there is no limitation to what he can do. He rescues and his rescue, his actions, they never come up short. He's never wringing his hands, wishing that he could do something, but he's being opposed. Sisters in Christ, some of you are convinced that no one sees you, that no one cares about you. And so you hurt yourself, shut yourself off, you suffer alone in silence. Or you attempt to beautify yourself so that others will see you. So that you will be noticed, finally. So that someone might care about you. But you feel even more alone. Sisters, God sees you. Some of you are so overwhelmed with health issues, either your own or someone you care about. You don't know the way forward. God sees you. He has always seen you. And his seeing is filled with affection. And not merely affection, it is, a, it is filled with effective power. It is filled with love and mercy. More than this, God not only sees, he knows. That last phrase in verse 25, and God acknowledged them. Simply better put, God knows. There is no... Uh, uh, direct object here. It's not them. It's simply God knows and God knew. He saw the children of Israel and God knew. Throughout the Old Testament, to know someone, to know something is to describe that intimacy with them. So Adam knew Eve, Eve, his wife, and it describes the most intimate way that he could know her. So we read... 
In Psalm 1, that God knows the way of the righteous. And as one commentator puts it, God watches over them with a loving interest and knowledge. God knows the afflictions of his people. He is intimately familiar with how we feel. With what it is like to be you and me. He hears his people. He sees his people. He knows. Not in some distant academic way. He knows us. And I have, I have a brother-in-law uh, who was raised in the panhandle of Florida. Deep, deep Florida. You know, never knew snow. Had seen snow on TV. And he married our sister and we live... Grew up here, not far from here, over in Quakertown area. And uh, it, he visited at Christmas time. They, they can't remember if, he was, if they were just married or, or engaged, but he visited at Christmas. First time he had been up to Pennsylvania when it was cold. And we had had a warm string of days in like the 50s, 60s, 70s. It was unusual. And uh, we went outside together and we were throwing the football around. We were having fun. And he came out, and he had on a thick cap, snow cap, and he had on his Florida Gators coat, and a thick, puffy jacket that came down almost to his knees, and he had his thick mittens on, and he comes out all huddled up, and it was 50s. You know, we were, my brother and I, we were like, this is, this is nice. It had been really cold. It had been in the 20s and teens. Now it's in the 40s and 50s. And we're like, oh, it's short sweater again, right? It, we're, we're just relaxed. This is great. And he couldn't handle it. He thought he knew what it was to be cold until he was there. Not too much, not too many, a few days later, as Pennsylvania weather goes, you know, 50, 40s, 50s, and then it drops back down into the 20s and we had snow. And he, he thought it was so beautiful. He wanted nothing to do with it, though. It's way too cold. We would go out and shovel, and he just watched from the window. And some, sometimes that's how you and I know things. We know about suffering, someone else's suffering, like we have heard it on the news, like the wildfires in, in Canada. But God knows He knows everything you have gone through. He knows your suffering. He knows you. He knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. And the key part of God's action is listed for us here in verse 24. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac, and with Jacob. This does not mean that God has forgotten or neglected his people of Israel. You shouldn't read that and think, huh, God God forgot, but now he remembered. The same way you forget, but now you remember. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 4.31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Or Isaiah 49.15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget. I will never forget you. God is completely unlike us. 
He does not forget. He does not need to remember in the way that you and I remember. His remembrance is not him. Oh yeah, this people, I got busy over in, the, in a different distant galaxy and now all of a sudden I, I got this people I made some promises to. That's not at all what's happening. happening. God is being described. It, it is from our human perspective. God is now working again and so we look at him and say, okay, he is remembered. Not that he is forgotten, but that now we are seeing him act. And what is it that he remembers? His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. That is, God is acting, not merely for Israel's sake, not because they are special, or will be special, or that there is anything noteworthy about them. If you read, even just through the rest of the books of Moses, you will find very quickly, there is nothing praiseworthy, nothing great about the people of Israel. I mean, Moses himself is frustrated with them time and time again. No, the reason God acts for the people of Israel is not because of them, what they have done or will do. It is because the promises that he made to them. And these same promises are in effect today. The reason we hope that God will restore his people of Israel. But these are the same promises that you and I rest in. That is his covenant to us through Christ Jesus. And God saves us out of his own gracious promises to Christ, in Christ, and not out of and for ourselves. We see this in John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and all who come to me I will never cast out. In John ten twenty eight to 30, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, he is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Perhaps it feels as if you have been forgotten. Perhaps it feels as if God's promises to you have been let lost. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus... Rest secure, not in yourself. Rest secure in the promises of God. No matter what affliction you face now, God does not let his people go. No matter how much we fail. No matter how weak our faith. God loves. He hears, he sees, he knows And he remembers his promise. What we see in this text are two truths about God. Certainly we can see and pull out more, but two primary things. The first is that God is a personal being. He is a personal God. What I mean by that is that he is not an impersonal force. Only a person can hear, can see, can know Even though God, and God is being described here in what we would call anthropomorphic language. There's your $10 word for the morning, all right? Basically what that means is he is being described in human terms. He sees, though he has no eyes. He hears, though he has no ears. He, he, He knows, though he has no brain. God is a spirit. He is immaterial. But he is describing himself in ways that you and I can understand and relate to. Why? 
so that we will come to him, so that we might know him, so that we might relate to him. Friends, God is not an it, nor is he distant and unavailable. God is infinitely transcendent, yes. But there are, as one old dead theologian reminds us, there are in God a multitude of diverse and seemingly contradictory excellencies. Let me put that in plain language. In the Lord, there meet things that seem to be opposite. God is perfect mercy and perfect justice. Those things in our world don't go together, but in God they do. God is holy. And yet, He is with us. He is transcendent, but He is imminent. He is loving. He is full of anger at sin. Here we are given these diverse excellencies that we might come to God. God is personal. Secondly, God is perfect in compassion. He is perfect in compassion. We forget this. If you were to list out all of the perfections of God, my guess is that compassion would be one of those that we leave off the list most easily. And yet I encourage you today, you could probably look it up by Google there, or if you have a Bible program or if you have a program on your phone with a search bar, you could just write in the word compassion. And if you're in a Bible app, it will fill in all the places in Scripture where we see compassion. Brothers, don't, don't do that now. But what you'll find is that God is, he is rich in compassion. You'll find texts like Isaiah 49, 13 to 15. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, oh, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Have you ever felt like that? And God responds, can a woman forget her nursing child? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Or Isaiah 54, 7, God says to his people with great compassion, great compassion, I will gather you. In Lamentations 3, 32, we read that God will have compassion according to his steadfast love. That is, in, the, in equal measure with God's love, God will have compassion on us. And he promises that in his compassion, he will have mercy and forgive Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our sin, our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And what must you and I do to receive this compassion? Isaiah 55, 6-7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
We see this most, most uniquely, most powerfully in the person of Jesus, don't we? If you will read through the Gospels, I'd encourage you to do this in the Gospel of Mark. You'll find a number of references, and it's the shortest of the Gospels. But in that Gospel, you'll find that Jesus has deep wells of compassion. He is God, after all. And when he is faced with the crowds before him, we, we read over and over again that he has compassion on them. When people come to him with great need, he has compassion on, great, on them. When they are sick, when there are those who are hungry, God has, Christ has compassion on them. And it is through Christ Jesus that God's compassion is put on display. The cross is the display of the compassion of God who hears and sees and knows the afflicted. Oh, friends. Oh, friends. Do you not know that you need God's compassion? Most of us don't want someone's compassion. It, it smacks too much like pity. But you and I, we are sinners through and through. We live for ourselves. We do what we want. Even, even on our best days, when we are trying to do good and be good, selfishness worms its way in. And we are all under the judgment of God. We deserve His affliction, His eternal affliction, for we have offended Him and sinned against Him who is perfect in every way. Will you not turn and come to this God who is rich in compassion? And Christian, has it seemed to you that God has forgotten you? Does it seem as if you are all alone in your grief, in your sorrow, in your affliction, in your struggles, in your situation, in your circumstance? Oh, cry out to God. He ears. He urges you to come. Call out to him in prayer. But you say, I, I don't know how to pray. I love Thomas Brooks, who writes this long ago. He says, God looks not at the oratory of your prayers or how elegant they may be, nor the geometry of your prayers, how long they may be, nor the arithmetic of your prayers, how many they may be, nor at the logic of your prayers, how methodical they may be, but at the sincerity of them. Then you might say, I am not worthy to pray. And he would tell us this, God's hearing of our prayers does not depend upon our sanctification, but upon Christ's intercession, not upon what we are in ourselves, but what we are in the Lord Jesus. Both our persons and our prayers are acceptable in the beloved. Brothers and sisters in Christ, run to Jesus in prayer. More than this, not only is he a God of compassion for you, if you are a Christian, you therefore, we must have compassion on one another. Husbands, wives, have compassion on each other this week. 
Men and women, as you go to work, and there's that person at work that is trying your patience again and again and again. How has the Lord had compassion on you? How ought you to have compassion on someone else? Have compassion with one another here at a church. Have compassion. Let us be displays of the compassion of the Lord. And finally, more than all of this, let if God is who he says he is, if he describes himself in these ways, then, then part of the message of the gospel is that God is a God of compassion. And we ought to, with all of our hearts, seek to testify of this Lord who has compassion to a world that is desperately in need of compassion. This is the fuel for missions The reason God has sent Moses to deliver his people is because he is a God of compassion. Develop a heart of compassion for the world so that we go, so that we support, so that we send. Who God is is of paramount importance to what he has called us to. A.W. Tozer tells us that the most important thing about us is what we think about God. For it will drive how we live. C.S. Lewis would tell us and he would remind us that that is actually only the second most important thing. If what we think about God is the, most, is the second most important thing, the most important thing for us is not what we think about God but what he thinks about us. Trust in Christ. And if you are trusting in Christ, rest in him. For he is rich in compassion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we often forget your compassion. But your mercies and your compassions, they fail not. Your faithfulness is great. Oh God, we pray that you would help us to be in our lives a display of your compassion more than this, oh Lord. We pray that your compassion will be the fuel for us to go to you in prayer, that your compassion for the world will be fuel for us to testify to those that you have in your providence put into our lives. Oh Father, Thank you for your compassion on us in Christ. It is by him and him alone we pray. Amen.